Me, um, I, I heard the, the expression spiritual activist a few years ago from a, from a friend of mine, a gay man from Jamaica, uh, who talked about being, described himself as being a spiritual activist. And I went, bing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and ended up talking to him about it and sort of started to sort of identify with that term myself. Um, but the, the notion of spiritual violence for me is how religion or spirituality is actually used as a weapon against certain kinds of people. Uh, for those of us who may not conform because of our views around gender or because of our uh, sexual orientation or our gender identities or expression or just our politics. The concept of spiritual inclusion becomes a vital lifeboat for minority individuals who struggle to reconcile their expressions of identity, be it sexuality or gender, with their religious beliefs. Not everyone wants to throw the baby with the bathwater. Today's guest self-identifies as a spiritual activist and places spiritual inclusion at the forefront of his cause. Welcome back to another episode of the Soul Space Podcast. We are your hosts, Adrian and Thel. On this episode, we are joined by El Farouk Kaki, a refugee and immigration lawyer, public speaker, and human rights activist. We explore the toxicity of dogma and how religion can be used as a form of spiritual violence. El Farouk shares with us his vision for a more inclusive and tolerant Islam. In 1991, El Farouk founded Salam, queer Muslim community, and in 2009, he co-founded the El Tawid Juma Circle, the Toronto Unity Mosque. El Farouk speaks publicly on issues including Islam, LGBTIQ and human rights, refugees, race, politics, and HIV. He has received numerous awards for his work in spiritual activism and social justice. It is our pleasure to bring you El Farouk Kaki. El Farouk, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, actually, I, I wanted to ask you right off the bat is uh, the meaning of your name and how to, how to uh, properly pronounce your name. <laughs> <laughs> so I pronounce my name as El Farouk, but I think its proper pronunciation would be more like El Farouk. Um, and it comes from the Arabic word Furqan for criterion. So El Farouk is the one who can tell right from wrong. Sounds like an appropriate uh, name for. <laughs> it's sometimes burdensome. <laughs> yeah, I, I I hear you there. When the name is like you know, there's a lot of expectation. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it it always it uh, it has forced me to always uh, measure my actions or my omissions with this premise that I. Um, have this capacity or this ability to uh, distinguish 
what I'm doing and whether it's correct mm -hmm. or incorrect or appropriate or inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so we'd like to start maybe with um, your early experiences with uh, spirituality and religion, maybe spiritual orientation in childhood, if any, um, and sort of how did you end up doing what you're doing? <laughs> so my family uh, is Muslim, and Islam has always been a very important part uh, of our identity as a, as a marker and also as a, as a practice. And my family is of Indian origin, but we are from East Africa. So we are, uh, and my family's historical roots are as a small Shiite community. Mm -hmm. um, so we are a minority within a minority within a minority. So I grew up, I was born and uh, spent the first uh, seven, eight years of my life uh, in East Africa, which is predominantly black. And the majority of the black folk who are Muslim are Sunni. And so we're a diasporic uh, immigrant origin, brown, uh, Muslim, but Shia, but not even majority Shia, minority Shia uh, mm. community. And maybe at that time, I really, really quite didn't understand that. Um, but I think over the years, we left when I was about eight years old and lived in England uh, and then moved to Canada and to Vancouver specifically. Uh, and I grew up basically with very limited sort of Muslims around me. You know, if we would go to our places of worship, uh, there were Muslims there, but most of them kind of looked like me. Mm -hmm. And um, my day-to-day -day life was really not connected to, to those people. And I grew up with people of all skin colors and uh, uh, all racial backgrounds and all religious backgrounds. The first... Uh, we la when we landed in Canada, we were in Toronto for 10 days, and the first religious celebration or event that we went to was at Purim at a synagogue. Um, and so that's the kind of mm -hmm. background that I, I came from. And uh, my family was very uh, open and inclusive when it came to diversity in terms of race and uh, religion. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that was always present was this notion of a spirituality uh, and that religion wasn't just about ritual, but it was about spirituality, which I understand as connection mm -hmm. and connectivity. Um, and often spirituality is understood as a connection between an individual and the divine or to a higher power. But I think that for me, part of my evolution has been this notion of spirituality that actually connects you to other human beings and to the rest of creation. Um, and uh, the tradition that I grew up in didn't necessarily embrace that or uh, integrate that. Um, and so that has also been uh, fed by my politics, my anti-oppression work uh, as an activist, um, as a lawyer who represents refugees, people fleeing persecution, and most of the folks I represent are are either queer folk or women fleeing uh, some kind of gender or domestic violence kind of a situation. Um, 
So my notion of spirituality sort of started to evolve, that it needed to address all of these injustices. It wasn't just simply enough just to feel connected to some higher or some divine power, but it had to be transformative. It had to be transformative uh, for me, but it also somehow had to transform my relationship to the world around me. Um, I often call myself the accidental activist because I didn't often find uh, spaces that I found... um, wholesome, like that, that embraced the fullness of who I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would walk into, I would be in activist circles, but they didn't have the spirituality or, you know, you'd walk into political circles and, you know, they, they talk the talk, but they didn't really understand intersectionality and, and, and so on and so forth. So a lot of times um, I was in these spaces and sort of going, but there's more, there's more, there's more. And so in 1991, I started Salam uh, here in Toronto. And Toronto was the first time that I met other Muslims or other people who were Muslim identified and who were also queer and or uh, involved in anti-oppression, social justice and human rights work. And so Salam was my attempt to... um, uh, create a social support network for lesbian and gay Muslims because this was back in the 90s mm-hmm. and you didn't really talk about the bi or the trans mm-hmm. stuff back then. Um, and at that time, I wasn't even ready to deal with the theology. I didn't feel mm-hmm. that I had the, the, the material, the, the capacity to, to, uh, to, to deal with that. And that's been part of my own sort of growth and, and my my journey. And so I've even come to this conclusion that a lot of our social justice movements and our political movements are unsuccessful because they don't actually embrace our spirituality and the notion of our own transformation as we are working to transform the world around us. And so if you're starting out as a hollow vessel, how can you fill anything else? Um, and so this, you know, entrenched me further into, into seeking a, a, a spiritual connection that that embraced all of these sort of different elements of myself which includes you know being a social activist and a and a human rights act, uh, advocate mm-hmm. yeah that's a be- beautiful um connection to we did an episode with andrew harvey recently and he coined the term i believe uh, sacred activism mm. and so looking at activism that's not divorced from a spiritual connection you know sort of fueled by a spiritual practice and something that there is acknowledging the mystery that is also, you know, sort of uh, underneath all the act, active, um, the, the great work that's coming out of activism, but not forgetting that there is that connection that, you, that you're pointing towards. Yeah. Um, how, did, how did that, the first few years um, go for you when, when Salam was created? I'm really curious, the early challenges, uh, what were some of the big obstacles when, when you had the idea to actually opening the doors? Oh, the... the the challenges were multi-layered. Mm-hmm. Uh, technology was a challenge, right? This was back in the early 90s. Not everybody, well, there was no cell phones. And, you know, people had these little answering machines at home that you had to press and play and you couldn't, you know, retrieve them from somewhere else and so on. And so at one point we had a, a contact list of about 60 to 80 people. And uh, you had to phone each one of them in order to tell them about some activity or some, some event that you were hosting. 
And because there were people with varying degrees of outness and different, you know, living situations, you would ha each one, you know, had a had a note attached to the phone number as to what you could say and who you could say it to, and you know what you couldn't leave on the message and so on and so forth. Um, so that was that was a technological and an outreach. Like, how do you let first of all, how do you let people know? What, what media do you actually use in order to get the word out? Uh, but then also, how do you keep in contact and how do you uh, inform people, especially people who are sort of scattered and at various sort of different levels of, of autonomy, uh, people living at home, uh, people not out, and, and, and all of that uh, sort of stuff. So those were some of the challenges. I think one of the ongoing challenges is, is uh, the toxicity of... of uh, institutionalized religion um, and that a lot of people have given up on their spirituality because religion has been such a toxic influence uh, in their life and so for me that that's never worked I've never been able to do that um, never wanted to do that and always believed that that I didn't need to do that uh, but sometimes when you're organizing these kinds of spaces and you're reaching out to people and people don't actually want to know about the space or don't actually want to even walk into the space because they've got so many barriers to it. And I think that that ends up creating a lot of um, uh, disconnect, like a, like a spiritual schizophrenia, if you will. Um, and I think that a lot of our issues that we face are that people have dis so disconnected, not just from religion, but also from, from spirituality. Uh, because often spirituality is vested in a religious tradition or in a religious path. Um, and when that spirituality has been stripped away, all you're left is with is religious toxicity. And so even convincing people that this might be a safe space or a healing space for them to try to connect uh, their their histories and their, their stories uh, and that they don't have to make a choice, it, it continues to be a challenge even, even now. So. How do you reconcile that? Because people who find themselves identifying in sort of alternative identities find themselves either having, especially who, who are brought up in, in the institutional, patriarchal, monotheistic traditions, find themselves either having to throw the baby with the bathwater or become paralyzed in dogma? How, how can they reconcile? Oh, dear. That's a heavy question. <laughs> I, I think that's a journey that everybody has to take. Right. Um, and I think that in some traditions, there's been some opening up. So we see that happening in... And I don't think it's just a problem with monotheism because mm -hmm. you see it in, in non-monotheistic traditions as well. Mm -hmm. And so when, when, if you look at Buddhism and Hinduism, they're also often um, plagued by dogma, by dogma right. and, and by misogyny. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in Bali and every Hindu temple had huge signs that prohibited people who menstruate from entering. Wow. Um, you know, and I was shocked because despite all of the, the, the menstrophobia in Islam uh, or in, in, in Muslim communities, I've never seen a sign like that on any mosque, right? Mm -hmm. And yet here are these Hindu temples and we have this notion that Hinduism is so uh, inclusive and so embracing with female gods and, and so on and so forth that, that you wouldn't encounter this. And yet, lo and behold, here it is. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think that that everybody has to go through that 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 journey. And certainly, like if you look in the West, uh, the geopolitical North, or however you want to define it, certainly some Christian traditions have uh, been grappling with some of the issues around gender and sexual diversity for some time. Uh, but there are both internal and external influences and pressures in in Islam today um, that tell us that Islam is a monolith. Right. Um, and even the people who have been oppressed by this notion still cling to this notion that there is only a singular, ahistorical um, uh, Islam. Which is crazy. Which is which is which is actually counterintuitive even to the whole message of the Quran right. and even to the uh, symbolism in the Quran, right? I mean, Allah in the Quran is constantly telling us to look at nature and to the to the passage of time and to the cycles of nature and the moon and and so on and so forth, which, which in, integrates change as and growth and development um, as being integral to to the religious experience, mm-hmm. um, and yet the religion itself, supposedly, we are now being told, uh, is unchanging and unresponsive, um, and in fact, it doesn't respond at all. We are supposed to conform to this, um, and yet, who defines what this is? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly not us who defines it. Mm-hmm. And it- sorry, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I remember you bringing up the the term uh, spiritual abuse, spiritual violence. Yeah. I think it was in, in in a TED talk you did. Um, could you elaborate what you mean by that? I, I love the, the the wording because it seems so appropriate. Right. So I mean, for me, um, I I heard the the expression spiritual activist a few years ago from a from a friend of mine, a gay man from Jamaica, uh, who talked about being described himself as being a spiritual activist, and I went. Bing! Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and ended up talking to him about it and sort of started to sort of identify with that term myself. Um, but the the notion of spiritual violence for me is how religion or spirituality is actually used as a weapon against certain kinds of people. Uh, for those of us who may not conform because of our views around gender or because of our uh, sexual orientation or our gender identities or expression, or just our politics, right? Um, and how religion, uh, under the guise of spirituality, and I think you know, contemporary Islam is kind of really devoid of spirituality. It's been reduced to a set of do's and don'ts. And if you do this, then you're Muslim enough. And if you don't do this, then you're not Muslim enough. And that's violence, mm-hmm. right? Because who is who is who is determining this? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is judging this? And, you know, uh, in the Sufi path and, and in the Islamic tradition, we have the 99 most beautiful names of God, and God is the judge, uh, not you, not me, not somebody else. And there's a, a whole body of, of tradition and literature that dates back to the Prophet that talks even about diversity of opinion and practice even at the time of the Prophet. Um, but all of these narratives are, you know, <laughs> unpopular to the to the contemporary discourse and so they're pushed aside they're not discussed and they're marginalized uh, because they're just not convenient so the whole idea of spiritual abuse is how religion is used to bludgeon us rather than to liberate our hearts 
So in, in my work as a refugee lawyer, yeah. and I primarily represent, uh, the majority of the cases that I present are either based on sexual orientation or gender identity or expression or gender. So everything from, you know, for the gender stuff, it's forced marriage, uh, domestic violence, uh, a lot of female genital mutilation. Um, but it over the years of, of doing this work and listening to people's stories, and I've represented people from about 120 different countries, so from all religious and non-religious and racial backgrounds and, and, and so on, is um, is how religion and spirituality are used as as these weapons to bludgeon people, right? Um, and uh, so we talked about that within the Muslim context, but I've seen it sort of universally. Women, can, and I think that that you know not all gay men are visibly gay, but all most women are visibly female uh, from birth. And the way patriarchy and misogyny and religion intersect is how women's bodies are controlled and how women, girl children, uh, uh, are, are controlled and limited uh, and told that they're not worthy. You're not worthy to lead prayer. You're not worthy to be in this space. You're not, you don't have the capacity or the ability. Um, and so this kind of um, hierarchy is created within, this gendered hierarchy is created within our theology mm -hmm. uh, and within our religious spaces. And to me, that's abuse. That's a form of violence right there to say that you are not worthy, that somehow you need to be confined in a particular space. So you Even need to- Even women's voices, like your voice. Is your like, voice yeah. cannot be heard, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and so on. So to, to me, even if you don't recognize this as abuse or as violence, it is, right? And so- um, I just had a, presented a case today. Um, uh, my client is, uh, uh, was a woman from, Muslim woman from West Africa. And I remember having this conversation with her because it's a question I have to ask my, my female clients who are alleging domestic violence is if they were raped during the marriage. And the notion that they can be raped by their husband is actually something that they sort of look at me and go, what? And I'm like, yeah, so if your husband forced you to have sex against your will, that's also rape <laughs> because it's your body and you have to consent. Um, and yet even within some, some Muslim theological constructs, there's no concept of, of, of marital rape, right? Yes, yes um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that's a form of violence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this is, these are the kinds of things that sort of have informed me in, in, the, development, in the development of my own theology mm -hmm. and, and um, how our relationship to God and ourselves and to religion and our spirituality has to be transformative and has to, and has to liberate because um, this is violence and surely our spiritual tradition doesn't teach us violence as a vehicle uh, for closeness to God's creation. Yeah, and it, it, it shouldn't be a source of pain and separation and trauma. Um, and take away people's lives, really, not allow people to thrive as human beings. Well, and that's that's exactly what it does, right? Is, is it suffocates our our growth as 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 human beings. And if we are all uh, created in God's image, then how does this violence allow us to reach our fullest potential? It doesn't. In fact, it constricts us and confines us and denies us that growth. Absolutely, it keeps us small. Yeah. Yeah. And separated. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the separation is also separation from, from ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's where all the then then all the the anxieties and depressions and the um, the the mental health issues that arise. Right. Um, uh, not yeah. Not only in the queer communities, it's everywhere now. Ev- everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Pervasive. There's so many layers to this. I'm thinking also like the psychological layer. Um, For people to be so complacent and to just download and accept um, and not question is one layer. Mm. And and then there is the... um, It's just the black and white way of thinking. And it seems like if there is no spirituality, then people have no um, sort of direction of growth. So yeah. there is no spiritual growth, and then there is no psychological growth. And so then there's no emotional growth. I really don't know where, where I'm going with this, but it's... it's, it's um, there's a whole it's idea... Paralyzing. Of, it is, and yeah. there's a whole a notion of being unworthy. Right. Right. So I was... Recently, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who comes from a, Mus- a South Asian Muslim background. And I said, do you celebrate Eid? And she said to me, I, I, don't, I don't practice, and so I don't think I deserve to mm-hmm. celebrate Eid. And I said, do you celebrate Christmas? <laughs> and I said, what makes you worthy to celebrate that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so it's really also interesting how, yeah. how people uh, compartmentalize, right. you know? Yeah. And so it's, she can't celebrate Eid because she doesn't fast, but... She's got a Christmas tree and, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, and, and maybe also the notion of the, the divine as, um, you know, someone up there that's going to zap you. Yeah. And you're not worthy of, of, of that, connecting to that God is also problematic and psychological and spiritual abuse too. So, you know, now we get into language around decolonizing, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. And decolonizing our our faith tradition because the notion of God anthropomorphized into into a male human form is not something that's actually intrinsic to Islam, mm-hmm. right? Even the word Allah has no gender even though Arabic is such a gendered language. Um, the word itself is actually um uh, has no gender. It's it's an irregular uh, word formation, um, and so the notion of God as male is not something that comes intrinsically from Islamic theology. Right. Um, maybe it's part of our colonial legacy. Even the way we understand certain words, like the word taqwa, uh, which in the early translation, English translations of the Quran, uh, which all happened during the colonial period, uh, taqwa is translated as God-fearing, uh, as opposed to God-awareness or God-consciousness. Right. Uh, and, and yet this notion of fearing God, uh, which may or may not have come from a Christian-European sort of paradigm, is now so much embraced by 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 people within the uh, Islamic tradition. And I don't think it's actually uh, intrinsic to our tradition, but it's just adopted, embraced, and unquestioned. Right. And it's very, um, yeah, it's it's like a tool that's used for self-abuse almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and speaking of, of the divine name and gender, wasn't it Ibn Arabi, like one of the early Sufis, that referred to Allah as also Hiya? Hua, you can call him Hua, you can yes. call her, you can him or her. He, yes. 
he said that. So he he did, and there's uh, in in a variety of different Muslim traditions over the years, particularly within spiritual explorations, the 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 the, the feminine quote unquote aspects of the divine um, have often been uh, embraced or talked about um, and theorized over and so on. And even with the 99 names, um, the Tao of Islam mm -hmm. uh, is an interesting book. I found it very, very heavy reading. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it um, embraces and explores the notion that the 99 names, and this is a, a, an old historical tradition within the Islamic uh, within Islamic history, that the 99 names are the names of beauty and the names of majesty. And the names of beauty have what we would traditionally describe as more feminine qualities, and the names of majesty as more traditionally masculine qualities. Mm -hmm. uh, again, we're projecting our own limit, binary limitations, but, true, okay. uh, but what it does open up is this notion that, that God is not male mm -hmm. um, and that God has no gender. Mm -hmm. And so that's why also at the Unity Mosque is uh, we've made an explicit choice to, in our uh, English materials, to refer to God in a, in a diversity of genders. And our formats tend to prefer feminine mm -hmm. uh, pronouns uh, for the divine, simply because any pronoun you knew, you use is going to be inaccurate and insufficient. Um, so because everyone's insufficient and inadequate in, in one side, Islam is very big on, big on the mizan and on the balance. So we're just trying to balance it out by using uh, another pronoun, which is equally inadequate. Right, so. right. And I feel that this, this, like this concept um, is serves well too in the mainstream circles i think if people open up and you know <laughs> embrace these different um it's not even different it is intrinsic to islam well lots of um forgiveness will happen absolutely i i think that what we have uh, been experiencing is a growing intolerance of diversity within the islamic tradition right. uh and I, I don't want to have this sort of this rosy image that our that our pre-colonial, pre-European colonial, because we also have an Arab colonial history as yes. well, right? Um, uh, that it was all perfect and so on. But there, we can see today historically that even today there are all these different traditions. But the dominant face of Islam is is one of monolith and patriarchy and and patriarchy. And I, you know, I, I use the examples of the of the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan, right? Mm -hmm. That they um, survived a thousand plus years of Islam, but they didn't survive fifteen years of the Taliban. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's that, the same that's thing. That's the toxicity of dogma. It's, it's yeah. toxicity of yeah. dogma. Yeah. It's the same thing with the Sphinx and the pyramids. You know, uh, these are. These are pre-Islamic monuments. These are iconography. Mm -hmm. um, there was no intention or desire to destroy any of these. Uh, when the Muslims went into India, they didn't destroy Hindu temples. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't prevent people from practicing their traditions. Mm -hmm. right? Um, and yet the intolerance that we find today for diversity. And I actually think that if anything, historically in the Muslim tradition, Muslims have been more intolerant of non-conformist Muslims than non-Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, but even, even within 
the Islamic tradition, there has been a notion uh, of embracing diversity. Uh, but I think that's being eroded, and I think that has been willfully eroded by political uh, forces. Forces, <laughs> yes. Political forces, yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, as, as a non-theist, like not really uh, identifying with any particular religion, I see... I see this pattern show up in places like science, like scientism, mm. right? Where there are certain beliefs and ideologies that are becoming dogmatic and, and people are using that as a form of control to say this is the authority who says this is the correct thing to believe in science and this is, you know, incorrect. Or, and so it seems like it's the church, church of, of certainty mm. that people are ascribing to in, yes. in, in this modern world. This happens politically too, right? I worked in, in political staff at Queen's Park and I'm like, wow, this is, this is their religion, mm -hmm. and it's very dogmatic. And, uh, you know, uh, it can also change very quickly if it's, if it's politically expedient for it to change. Yeah, so I think you're, you're absolutely right when you say it's the tolerance for diversity, but it seems also for, for the mystery, for not knowing, mm. to admit the uncertainty that, hey, we might actually not really know what the answer is, and to sit in that space and have a capacity for that. It with the unknown. <laughs> but that's also what drives us, right? Mm -hmm. it is uh, uh, our intellectual and spiritual journeys are, are driven by um, wanting to know the unknown. Um, so what did somebody say to me? I, I read somewhere the other day and I thought it was, magic is something that science hasn't found an explanation for yet. Because uh, mm -hmm. I'm a believer of magic and I, I do. Um, and and it's, that was very interesting too when you had mentioned about activism as well because that's also there's also dogma within the activist communities yeah. and it's almost interesting to see that because activism I feel like activism activism at its heart is a sacred work if you're asking for justice and yes. pointing at the wrongs that are happening in the world how can you not work on your inner self. Well, I think we get swept up with anger. So mm, was it last summer true. or the summer mm. before uh, one of the women who is part of uh, the Unity Mosque here asked me to speak at a rally and it was like a, you know, uh, an anti-racism rally and stuff. And, I, and I, I agreed to do that and I went there and I listened to some of the speakers before me and they were all so angry. You know, we've got to crush this and we've got to crush that. We're going to stomp this out. We're going to stomp that out. And I just couldn't do it. You mm -hmm. know? And... Um, I spoke about transforming mm -hmm. and, and building a, a better future so that all of our kids uh, could, uh, could live together and, 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 and have a world to live in and, and, and live in harmony with not only each other but with uh, creation around them and that that was the world that we had to create as activists. I'm not sure how the message went, went over in a, you know, in a room of... Full of anger. Uh, in, a, in a space full of anger, right. yeah. I mean, I like I can ask you that question. How how are you not angry with all those intersections, Al Farouk? Oh, I, I do get angry. I do get angry, yeah. but at the end of the day, my anger is not going to change anything. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and um, if you're empty on the inside, or you're filled with anger on the inside. How do you change something on the outside and what do you change it with? And what do you fill that space with, mm -hmm. right? So at the end of the day, the work has to start with yourself. Um, 
And the, the, I, I, I often speak about the anger is righteous. We have every right to be angry. Mm-hmm. Um, now what do we do with it? Mm. Right? Where do we go from here? How does that work? And if you're just stuck in the anger, there's no movement. There is no transformation. You just replace one structure or one leader or one ruler with another, and then you just keep replicating that same that same paradigm. And we have seen this in, in revolution after revolution. We were talking about the Arab Spring before we, uh, we started uh, our formal conversation today. And we all had such great hopes. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking to some clients of mine who are from Iran, and I said to them, you don't know in Iran before the revolution. And the revolution was uh, um, something that was filled with hope. And it brought a million people into the streets of Tehran from a variety of religious and political traditions. It was filled with hope, but it got lost. And it got lost in religion that uh, became toxic or uh, because it... it, it it didn't embrace the human condition and it, it became stripped of spirituality in its need to have political and social control. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, um, what fuels your, your work in terms of practices? What sort of daily or regular practices that seem to really help keep you going? Because I, I imagine you're, you're met with all sorts of resistance and challenges and you, you need something to keep that energy going. Yeah, I have Zikr playing constantly. Mm. I have I have sacred music playing constantly, uh, mostly Sufi music um, and uh, native uh, music playing, and uh, that uh, seems to calm my soul. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to hug trees more often, but uh, <laughs> I recommend that. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit difficult when it's minus thirty outside. Too. It's true. <laughs> it's been a while. I'm a, I'm a West Coast kid, right? Yeah. So that's what I aspire to. We just came back from Costa Rica, and I'm like, I just want to be here. Uh, you know, be at the beach and 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 walk through the forest and look at the birds and the butterflies, but. Uh, that's not always possible. So yeah, it's it's my my connection to the sacred, and it's the music and the chanting, that that really uh, I think hold my hold my space for me. Mm. I know I know you regularly attend uh, Durga with with Hoi King, um, doing some of the the Sufi practices. Um, I've never actually gone to one. I, I'm actually curious to hear what's involved in, in 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 those meetings and gatherings, and I'm quite interested in the practices themselves. Well, when we were talking earlier, you talked about breath, right? And so um, you actually need to be at a Sufi Durga because breath is such is so important. And all life starts with breath, right? The Quran says that uh, all life starts with water, but creation starts with God's breath being blown into us. Um, and uh, uh, for me, that's... I really like the Durga space because I end up like with the Unity Mosque and other spaces, I, I often end up being sort of uh, central to that space. What I like about the Durga is I can just be a student in that space. Um, so was that your question? I, I was curious to, to hear you describe what it's like to attend one for listeners that have not had experience uh, either. And- okay. So uh, the Durga is basically the, 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 the school of, of our teacher. 
and in some Sufi traditions, the teacher is called a sheikh. In the Rifai Sufi tradition, we call our teacher Baba, which means father. Uh, and uh, we begin by sitting in a circle, and uh, he delivers his sohbet, which is a lesson or a teaching. And uh, he always tells us that this is the most important part of the evening uh, because it's um, basically where we are toned and brought into common space, right, through his teaching. And um, our Baba is, is fairly informal. Uh, other communities are more formal or more vested in, in cultural or uh, ritual and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but he's quite open to people asking questions, and and we laugh and we you know uh, 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 engage in conversation. But he is the teacher; we are in class, and that lasts for about two hours. And then, uh, depending on the time of the year it is, uh, we will then say our communal uh, prayer, our ritual prayer, Muslim ritual prayer. Uh, and after that, we begin zikr. And the zikr comes from an Arabic word that means remembrance. And Allah in the Quran says, prayer is good, but remembrance is even better. And so uh, a dervish uh, is called upon to remember God uh, at all times in all things. Uh, and to see God manifest in, in all things all around us. And so the zikr is the chanting of the divine names. Uh, we chant la ilaha illallah, which means there is no God but God. Um, and uh, I think essential to that is the understanding that that small God is not just an, an idol or an icon, but the idol and the icons that we hold in our heart. So whether it's money or it's uh, a person or it's our job uh, or it's... Uh, uh, our, you know, uh, the, our art or whatever it is, those are the idols or the icons that we hold in our heart. And we have to break those idols and those icons because there is only, there is only one reality and that we're all joined in that reality. So that's the, the foundational uh, remembrance. And then uh, there are other remembrances. So we chant Allah as the name of God and who which is, uh, in Arabic means he, but it is the remembrance of the breath um, and the, the secret name or the, the, the sacred name of the divine that we remember each time we breathe. Um, and, but it's, it's orchestrated as part of the practice so that it is, it is done in community and, and, and ritualized. And we do that for about 90 minutes and then we eat. Uh, because by then you worked up an appetite. Uh, so that, that's part of my therapy, right? So I find the, the Unity Mosque to be very therapeutic, but because of my position and location within it, um, uh, it's, it's a different space for me than when I come into Durga, where I'm a student and I can just actually sit and just be present without having to be <laughs> active, you know? Does everybody do the whirling, or is it just the dervishes that are performing um, the movement? So, uh, 
The whirling is a ritual that's present in some Sufi traditions and not present in others. Mm. And uh, our teacher, our Baba, has um, is part of a sacred lineage from two different Sufi traditions, the Rifai and the Jarahi. And uh, the whirling is... Uh, a ritual, a historical ritual component of the Jirahi lineage. And uh, we've, we used to have whirling, but not very often. So our Baba's son and his wife, they both whirl, but we didn't have it very often uh, because we didn't have a lot of people within our community who, were, who, who knew how to whirl. And that's changing because now there's more and more people um, and we get people go for classes. So uh, classes are offered every uh, every Saturday before the Durga. Um, and so people are going for classes. And uh, so we're starting to see it happen more and more often within our our Zikr ceremonies. I'm so curious because to me it seems like the, the, the movement practice is like sort of the yoga in other practices where you, the body and the mind, actually there's a component where it's not just through. So Muslim ritual prayer is yogic, but we don't recognize it as such. Mm. And I've had friends who practice yoga who've come into Muslim space and joined us in prayer and said, this is very familiar. Mm -hmm. This is not foreign. This is, but Muslims don't conceptualize our ritualized prayer as being a yogic practice. Uh, and I think that's our loss. Um, the, the practice of zikr, depending on which community, can also, also has movement. And that also... Uh, is combining the the body, uh, the spirit, and the mind in in movement. Um, the whirling for me is very interesting. Thal, you and I were talking about Umrah and and Mecca, mm -hmm. and when we went in 2011, and we were staying at the hotel, and we were overlooking the Haram Sharif, uh, the, the 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 mosque in Mecca. And there was never a moment in the day when there were people who were not doing their tawaf, their circumambulation of the Kaaba. And I remember thinking, and because people are wearing, uh, a, a lot of the men are wearing white, and some of the women are wearing black, and then other colors. Um, I'm a sci-fi fan, so I looked at this and I went, my God, it's like looking at the Milky Way. Mm. It's like looking at a galaxy that's constantly whirling, right? right? Um, and it's whirling around the center point, this, this black box that's in the middle. It could be a black hole in the middle of the universe or the middle of the galaxy. And it's all whirling around that. And the dervishes, oh, oh, when they're whirling, they're whirling around their heart as the center point because mm. the heart is the seat of, is, is where God sits, right? Um, and so all of these movements, whether it's the dervish that's whirling or the pilgrims that are uh, going around the Kaaba or the earth going around the sun uh, or the galaxy spinning, uh, we're all turning towards the heart. We're all turning towards the core, Right. Um, so I really see a connection between, between what's in the universe out there and the microcosm that's, uh, in the Durga and the further microcosm that's within uh, each of us. Yeah. yeah. And within our bodies. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned to you, spirituality is 
underneath that is the connection mm. and seeing the connection from all scales, whether it's the large cosmos to you as an individual, just even looking at your body as a cosmo, cosmic representation. Absolutely. And our, our bodies, and, and actually Baba often talks about this as well, um, our, our bodies are so complex. I mean, they're a universe in and of themselves, right? Mm. Um, and yet we don't recognize that we take our bodies for granted, abuse it, and neglect it, and forget it, and do all sorts of things with it. That's true. How can you get angry if you think about all those things? That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, th I think anger is part of the human condition. Of course, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's where we allow it to take us and how we uh, bounce back from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about, um, you know, people who, young Muslim people that identify as queer and who are really, really struggling mentally um, and probably thinking about walking away from the religion because they feel they're not accepted. I mean, what kind of advice would you give those people? Don't let other people tell you mm. who you are or what you are. Uh, learn to define it for yourself and, and embrace your spirituality is, is innate to us. Um, and why should we have to choose uh, that uh, because it doesn't fit with somebody else? Um, and so I would say to, to people is, you know, look within and, and, and uh, find your own path because it is possible to do. Mm -hmm. What what is what is your vision for for the the future of Unity Mosque and and beyond? I guess all the other manifestations that branch out of that. I want to subvert the planet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's your master plan? Um, I would uh, the idea for me of the Unity Mosque is to uh, transform the face of Islam. Mm. Um, to not everybody is going to end up at Durga. Uh, and that's it's always been that way. Not everybody has uh, a calling to uh, center stage uh, a spiritual connection, right? But everybody has spirituality. Everybody has uh, a need for for connection. Um, and I don't think it's a small coincidence that a number of people who, who come to my Durga actually started coming to Unity Mosque first. And some of them don't come to Unity Mosque anymore, uh, but they found their way from there to, uh, to, the, to the Durga. Uh, my hope for the Unity Mosque is that its um, vision of inclusion and of a shared humanity uh, and a cohesive spirituality is something that uh, uh, continues to be disseminated and that similar spaces uh, start coming up in, in different places. Uh, I'd like to see this as a globalized movement. And, and we're starting to see more and more spaces like this coming up in, in different parts of the world. Of course, in some parts of the world, it's not actually safe for these spaces to exist or to exist publicly. And it's not, it's not going to be possible, which is also why uh, we, uh, our sermons, our Friday services are broadcast through Facebook Live. And we actually have uh, an international congregation. And every Friday, there's people from Kenya and Ireland and places in the States and 
across the GTA who for, for some reason can't get down to the physical location and, and so on and so forth who, who do access the service. And because the, the service is then, uh, the recording is kept on the Facebook group, I will often go back and check and see that something's been watched 200 times or 150 times and, and so on and so forth. So it's my hope that, that people are, their mindset and their, uh, their understanding is also being transformed. And uh, one of the things that uh, I always say to people is that if you want to try to start a community in your own physical location, we're here to help you uh, start that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Protestant Reformation started with people taking back their Christianity. And so the Unity Mosque is uh, hopefully a vehicle for people to take back their Islam. And one of the interesting things that you had mentioned, because we attended uh, the Unity Mosque prayer last Friday, and one of the things you mentioned was that the space itself, um, there are a lot of Jewish people that practice too, right? <laughs> so that's a, that was interesting to see that too. Well, not everybody who comes to the Unity Mosque is Muslim yeah. identified. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so for me, there's, there, this speaks to the potential transform transformative capacity of, of a space like the Unity Mosque because I'm not trying to convert people. Exactly. I'm to, yeah. I, I would like people to come and feel better about themselves mm -hmm. and find their own connection. And if that connection is through Islam, that's fabulous. And if it's not through Islam, then, then you know, Allah in the Quran says not everybody is meant to be Muslim. Mm, uh, and, and that even religious diversity is part of God's plan. Uh, it's mentioned that uh, or else I would have created you all just one absolutely. type of people. <laughs> absolutely. So I don't actually know when people come to the mosque whether they're Muslim or not, mm -hmm. unless I happen to know them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, most of them are, but some, but some of them are not. And some of the folks come from uh, mixed religious backgrounds or mixed families or have Muslims in their extended family. Mm -hmm. um, some of the... Some of the folks uh, who I spoke about uh, who come from Jewish backgrounds, uh, some of them are converts to Islam. Some of them uh, come from mixed Christian and Jewish homes. And you know, if you come from a mixed Christian and Jewish home, then Islam is, is, is really a very good solution. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> because, like the end of the narrative. <laughs> because, because you don't have to, you don't have to give up Moses and the Torah and you don't have to give up Jesus. That's right? true. You yes. know? Uh, Just combine you, them both. You can, exactly. Um, and uh, so, you know, that, that, that uh, I said it jokingly, but, but it's actually kind of true. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, and it has appeal for people yeah. uh, uh, for that reason. And remember, during the time of the Prophet in Medina, Muslims and Jews used to pray together. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. oh, there's so many beautiful we're not stories. Doing anything, we're <laughs> Absolutely, not, yeah. yeah, we're yeah. not doing anything new. Yeah. We're just reclaiming our past that other people have tried to pretend doesn't never existed. Right. Yeah. And at the same time, move forward. I, I think this is the 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 element or the essence of Islam that I think the fundamentalists forget mm -hmm. that it is organic and it is responsive. Even the the history of Islam, the the Quran was revealed over a twenty three year period to the Prophet Muhammad because it was in response. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't here. It is now conform, uh, which is what we're told Islam is today. 
But it is not the history of Islam. It is not even how Islam came into the world. It came in as into the world as, as a response, a response to the need of people mm -hmm. and of society. I think people confuse the concept of uh, surrender with, with conformity, maybe. Yeah, who's the surrender to yeah. is the question. Because mm. usually the people who are telling you that you need to surrender, they'll tell you to surrender to God as they understand God and to God's word as they tell you to understand it. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, true surrender is a very, it's a very deep way of being and it's about a connection with your, with yourself, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if Allah is closer to you than your own jugular vein, then, you know, you need to look inside as well as outside at the same time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anything that you wanted to talk about that you haven't had the chance to talk about or any question that you would have liked to be asked? Because you've always been out in the media for like <laughs> 20 plus years. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, you know, we, we talked about psychotherapy and, and so on. And I, I think that a large part of this, uh, some of the crisis that we see and the dependencies that we see in the world around us, I think it comes from this schizophrenia, this compartmentalization of our uh, physical, sexual, spiritual, and emotional beings. And so the even the, the name for the Unity Mosque, it's, Tawheed, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's unity, it's oneness, but oneness is not sameness, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I and I think that whether you find it in Islam or you find it through any other tradition, um, finding that that sense of balance and that connection uh, to yourself and to the world around you, I think is what's it's what's. Uh, missing for many people and it's what causes all this dysfunction in the world around us. Absolutely. Thank you. Beautifully Thank you. said. Thank you. For Thank you very much for your time. Da, 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 da. <laughs> <laughs>